Lord, help me. It's kind of like that first job, right? When you first start on that job, you don't know anything. So you're very humble, asking for help. And you're working overtime, right? You're working really hard. But as soon as you start to get comfortable, get a little knowledge, what? You start to go a little early, right? Don't tell me what to do. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you what. Do you see how that happens? We, we stop learning. We lose our humility. And that's the sense that's kind of probably has happened here. And I think we all can relate to that in our Christian walk. The more learning we get of the scriptures, the less childlike we become. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Chapel Echo Park here in Los Angeles, California. We are a small fellowship of diverse believers who want to serve our Lord and do His will. You can find out more about our fellowship at ccechopark.com. Join us for our live stream on Sunday in the New Testament and Wednesday evenings in the Old Testament. Now let's get into the Word of God in our weekly podcast. The teaching is from Pastor David Higa and will be the study of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation. The church is a lampstand. It's a vessel. It's not the light. It's not the spirit, right? It's not God. It's not the spirit. It's not the light. It's not the, the olive oil. It is a vessel for those things, right? And so he likens these lampstands to, to the churches, right? Now, let me ask you this. If this truly is the church, the vessel of the Holy Spirit and of the light, can there be a loveless church? It's an oxymoron, isn't it? Can we exist as a church, do all the things of a church, right? Do ministry, do evangelism, right? Speak in tongues and uh, have the gifts of, and we're going to allude to the greatest gift again, have the gifts of prophecy and the gift of teaching and be loveless? Well, it's interesting. That's the warning to this church here in Ephesus. It's a very interesting warning when you think about it. They have all these things of maturity, right? That mark maturity, but they've left their first love. And notice what Jesus says. He says, you know, if you don't repent, I'm going to quickly remove your lampstand. What does he mean? I'm going to quickly remove your church. That's interesting. Where's Ephesus? It's modern-day Turkey. Is there a church in Turkey? Well, maybe an underground church. But you know what? He did remove that church. Why did he remove? Well, I would say that this prophecy or this warning became true. That they left their first love. So they had all the different like um, marks of ministry, right? And we're, we're going to study that. But, but they left their first love. So the warning, the warning is very poignant. And, it, and, and the, warning is, the warning is to us. Okay. John wrote this. He says, write the things which you have seen. John. This is Jesus telling John, write the things which he has seen. Now, where did John write the things which he has seen? Well, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, what did he see? The unveiled Jesus. Remember, we noted this, right? So these are the things which he has seen. Jesus is no longer veiled. He's unveiled, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this is what he wrote, I believe, in chapter 1. Write the things which you have seen. And then he goes on to say, and the things which are. Notice the present tense. What are the things which are? Well, the present tense, in terms of when John was writing this, was the time of the church. Are we in the time of the church? Absolutely. The time of the church started in what? The book of Acts, at Pentecost. The time of the church will end when? At the rapture of the church, right? The dispensation of grace will be completed at the rapture of the church. If you want to look at that whole dispensational kind of perspective right the time of the church right will conclude when the church is raptured and say so when it says and the things which are 
That pertains to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Those are the letters to the churches. Those are applicable until the time of the church ends. The time of the church ends at the rapture of the church. So I believe that between Revelation 3 and 4, the church is raptured. So when you get to Revelation 4, the church is in heaven. And then Revelation 5, the introduction of the scroll with the seven seals. And then Revelation 6 through 19, the loosing of those seals, right? Which is judgment, right? So that that scroll, which I believe is the title deed to the earth, is open. And then Jesus returns, right, to rule and reign in Revelation 20, right? With the saints for a thousand years. And that's when the title deed of the earth is re-established back to Jesus. Okay, so we'll talk about this as it unfolds, but I'm giving you the overall outline, the Revelation roadmap. So when it says, and the things which are, the roadmap or the outline is now, what, chapters 2 and 3. So we just read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, right? That's the letter to the first church, Ephesus. Now there's six more churches that he writes letters to, right? We're going to be in this for the next several weeks because we want to take a lot of study and time, right? to know the details because this is a message to us. It's a message to the church at large, okay? But then, Revelation 1 verse 19 says, and the things which will take place after this. Okay, so what will take place after the church? The church is gonna be in heaven, right? And so, what takes place is the rapture of the church. I'm gonna take you to those scriptures really quickly. The rapture of the church is different, we believe, from Jesus' return in Revelation 19. Jesus returns to rapture the church and they meet him in the air. We're going to look at that in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. But then in Revelation 19, he returns with the saints, which were raptured, right, at the beginning of the tribulation. And he's going to return. He's going to rule and reign physically for a thousand years. Two different occasions, we believe. Now, not everybody believes that, but I'm going to show you why we believe that. And the outline is right here in Revelation 1, verse 19. The things which are is the time of the church. The things which will take place after this is the time after the church, the time after the church is raptured. Okay. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's ap apologetic on the resurrection. Okay, so he gives a great apologe apologetic that... You know, we're going to receive resurrected bodies at the rapture of the church. But he concludes this chapter about speaking when that's going to happen. Our resurrected bodies will receive at the rapture of the church. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's pick up at verse 50 as he concludes this chapter. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, how fast is the twinkling of an eye? Pretty fast, right? It's faster than this, right? You're not going to have time to change your mind. Oh, the rapture's coming. Lord, I believe in you. No, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen at the twinkling of an eye. And it's going to happen when people don't expect it. You can read the whole parable of the ten virgins there, right? In the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, right? Five are ready, five weren't. Five had the spirit, the oil, and five didn't, right? And so... All that to say, it's going to happen very quickly, the rapture of the church, right? It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. How are we going to be changed? Well, it says, verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal 
must put on immortality. So he's talking about the resurrected body. It's going to happen at the twinkling of an eye. So this mortal body can't inherit heaven and be face-to-face -face with the Lord who's in his resurrected body. Right? We must put on what? A body made for the heavens, and that's the resurrected body. So this happens at the rapture of the church. And so verse 54 says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So the body, the mortal body, the dead in Christ will rise first, right? And so those whose bodies, mortal bodies have been put in the ground, they're going to receive a eternal body, an eternal body, a resurrected body first, and then we who are living at the rapture of the church, we're going to follow them very quickly, right, and receive our resurrected bodies. First Thessalonians chapter 4, right at verse 13. <clears throat> Paul writes this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ, right? Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we do, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those who die in Jesus. Okay, now verse 15. For this we say to you with, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So at the coming of the Lord... Right? We who are living aren't going to precede those who have died in the Lord, died in faith, with receiving a resurrected body. That's what he's saying, right? So verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those that have died in Christ, died in faith, right? they're going to receive their resurrected bodies first. Now notice this. He's going to meet them in the air. Okay? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds or in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these. We see that the rapture of the church and the return of Christ are two separate happenings. Two separate historical events. And so what happens between those two separate historical events? We believe the seven-year tribulation, right? And so we believe that all this is recorded in Revelation and other books as well, but specifically in Revelation, and the chronology is given to us in Revelation 1, verse 19. Let me read that again uh, to you. Revelation 1, verse 19, it says, Write the things, he's writing to John, right? Write the things which you have seen, which is the Revelation in chapter 1, the unveiled Jesus, and the things which are, which is the letters to the seven churches, which are represented to the church at large, right? Revelation 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this, after the time of the church, after the church is raptured. And so we're going to see the church in heaven in Revelation 4. And then after that, we're going to see a seven-year tribulation marked by the seven seals of judgment loosed, for that title deed to be reclaimed when Jesus returns with the saints, right, to set up his millennial rule. Okay, so you can see how this fits into this Revelation roadmap in Revelation 1, verse 19. The church is very much involved, okay? But they're raptured, then the seven-year tribulation, and then they're going to return with Jesus to rule and reign on this earth. He goes to prepare a place for us. How does he prepare a place? Well, he goes to the cross of Calvary. 
Pays the price of sin. So that we would be born again, right? The perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice not only covers sin, but removes sin. So he goes to the cross of Calvary, removes our sin, gives us the Holy Spirit. And that's the deposit guaranteeing that we receive a resurrected body. So when Jesus comes at the rapture of the church, he's going to look for everyone that has the Holy Spirit in them, and he's going to give them a resurrected body. We just read that, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are living will be caught up, raptured, and be with the Lord, caught up in the air. Right? We'll receive our resurrected bodies. The ones that have the Holy Spirit in them would receive that, right? That's how he goes and prepares a place for us. And then verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. I believe that's a reference to the rapture of the church. And that where I am, there you may be also. And so when Jesus raptures us, gives us bodies made for the heavens, we're going to be with him. It's going to call be the marriage supper of the Lamb. The seven years of tribulation, we're going to be up there with the Lord. We're going to be feasting, and we're going to look at that as we get further into Revelation. But at the end of the seven-year tribulation, we're going to return. Jesus is going to return with his bride, the church. We're going to return to this earth. Revelation 19, a different event. The rapture and the return are different events. Okay? And we're going to return with Christ. We're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. A literal reign of Christ. Okay? So I'm giving this to you. So you want to mark these three scriptures, right, on the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Thessalonians 4, and then right here, Revela I mean John chapter 14, right? And so we can piece these things together, and so as we do, we now have a roadmap, the Revelation roadmap, right? The time that we're in now, Jesus is giving us letters, warnings, commendations and warnings, okay? So we want to receive what Jesus has to say to the church. So we want to apply all these letters to us, right? Don't just point the finger. And don't just point to a certain time in history, church history. It applies to us, okay? And so I had a quote by uh, Walvert that kind of alludes to that. If I can find it real quick. But he kind of talks about that, how these letters, they pertain to all of us. He says, since the seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3 are written to all churches at all times and in all places, it is regrettable that these messages of encouragement, rebuke, and warning are not more carefully studied by modern-day Christians. What is he saying? So often we skip this, right? I'm going to get to the good stuff. How's it all going to end? We read Paul's letters to his seven churches, but we don't read Revelation 2 and 3. All right, so chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Okay, now, who's the angel? That's a question of debate, right? And I have to share with you, you know, there's different opinions on this, but we really don't know for sure because angel, it's the word angelos, and it literally means messenger. So we do know that there's angelic beings, right, that are messengers. We can see that. Remember when uh, certain angels would visit Daniel or Ezekiel and all these things, right? So we see oftentimes angelic beings, right, they come with the message of God. But then we also know that messengers can be any messenger. And so many would say, so, so this is to the church, that these could be pastors of the churches, pastors of that church. It could be either, I, Jesus, verse 16 of chapter 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. Who did he send? Not the pastor. He sent my angel to who? To testify to you these things in the churches. Okay, so this to me kind of 
points a little bit more to the angel of the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira, all these, uh, that they're literal angels. Now, we don't know for sure, but you look at this verse, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to, to testify to you the, these things in the churches. Now, again, this is the only time church or churches is used after Revelation 3. So this is how we believe or come to know that from Revelation 4 all the way, right? After that, after that church, that it's future, right? But it's recorded for the church to know because we need to know the final chapter. It's important. We need to know how it's all going to unravel. But then he says, I, Jesus, have sent my what? My angel to testify to you these things in the churches. And so this wouldn't be a pastor, right? So could this be kind of support, right? In verse 1 of chapter 2, when it says to the angel of the church, it's actually an angel. I, I, I think it could be, but we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that we need to take heed to the message. Whether it's an angelic being or a pastor, right? The message is for us, not just for that specific church, okay? As with all the other letters, okay? So it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. Now, do we have a lot of data on Ephesus? Absolutely, right? And you can kind of reference these. I'm going to give you these references. You know, Paul's second missionary journey, Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Luke records the gifts of the Spirit were radically moving in the church of Ephesus. Now, the gifts of the Spirit, what's the greatest gift? The gift of love. But according to this letter that Jesus writes after these many years, what happened? They left their first love. Now, could that happen? You get so into, oh, I got to get the prophecy. I got the words, words of knowledge. I speak in tongues, but then you don't have any more love? Well, Paul warned that, right? If I speak in tongues, right, of angels, and have not love, what does he say? I'm nothing. Right? And so... We can see that this happened, right? They were moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Acts chapter 19, verse 11 says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And this is right around the church of Ephesus. And if you read that further along, like he was kind of walking around and people just kind of stand under his shadow and get healed. They touch his handkerchief, they get healed. Radical gifts of the Spirit. But the greatest gift is what? Love. And so I want to mark this here. There's a lot of data points, right? They were working in the gifts of the Spirit, but then they left the Spirit of love. They, they left the greatest gift, which was the Spirit of love. Isn't that interesting? Now, also, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, we're not going to take time to read that. Mark this in your notes. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. That's Paul's third missionary journey. And the record is, remember, he's returning to Jerusalem, but he passes by Miletus, and so the church in Ephesus, they go south there to meet him because there's prophets there. And they tell Paul that, you know, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be persecuted there. And Paul says, you know, I know I am, but I need to go anyway. Remember that? But in that whole dialogue, you see the love that they have for each other. So I'm marking this too. We have a lot of data points of a church that had a lot of love. A lot of gifts of the Spirit, they had love. But then somewhere along the line between the time of Paul's third missionary journey and the time of John wrote this letter or gave this letter of Jesus to Ephesus, that they left that love. Now let me ask you this. Can that happen to you? Can that happen to this church? 
Well, that's the warning. You see, people, we can become so learned, so mature in our faith that we what? We forget Jesus. That childlike, that childlike faith, right? And so, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, you might want to go to these scriptures and refer to them. Did they know doctrine? Oh, you better believe they knew doctrine. Mature, right? The book of Ephesus, uh, of Ephesians, you ever read that? First three chapters, all doctrine. What Christ has done for us. Remember the last three chapters? Application. But they knew doctrine. Very mature. So mature that they left their first love. Isn't that interesting? And so he says, these things, says he who holds the seven stars. So, who are the seven stars? Well, they're the seven what? Seven angels of the seven churches, right? So who holds them? It's Jesus in his right hand. So you know, Jesus holds, right? Holds the leaders of the church. Holds them in the right hand. The messengers, right? These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lambs. And I love that picture, right? Who walks in the midst of the church? The lampstands are the church, remember? We noted this. They're vessels. They're not the Holy Spirit, and they're not the light of God. Right? They're vessels. And Jesus being the high priest, right? He's the one that what? Replenishes the spirit, right? And keeps that light burning. He walks in the midst of the lampstand. But I want you to note that we are what? We are vessels. So, one of the major things about being a vessel of the spirit and a vessel of the light is is love. Building up. Building them up in the truth, right? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And so we see that Jesus is in the midst of the church. Are we vessels with Jesus being in the midst of the church? Are we vessels of his love? Because right here it says that they forsook or they have forsaken or have left their first love. Now, verse 2 says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So it would seem they're very, very discerning, very knowledgeable, right? It says that you cannot bear those who are evil, right? And so those that come in the church, right, they're good at church discipline, right? Those that are trying to do evil, right? They can identify them and they can deal with them. Very important for church to do, right? And you have tested those who say they're apostles and they're not. And so those that come in and say, you know, I have the anointing, I'm a prophet, I'm this and that. You can test them, right? And for them to be able to test them, they're very mature. They know the scriptures, they know how to test, right? And how to apply those tests. He says, and you have found that they're not and that they are liars. Notice perseverance, and you have persevered and have patience. You know, the scriptures on perseverance, John, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, right? But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and, and complete, lacking nothing. Okay, so notice the maturity, right, that James describes of having perseverance and patience. They have that. He's, Jesus commends him for that. And notice the labor. And have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Right? So they're workers. They labor for the Lord. Notice in verse 1, I know your works and your labor. 
they labor. Now, this word labor, I'm going to read you a comment. This is by um, uh, my old pastor in Calvary Chapel, uh, Santa Barbara, uh, Pastor Ricky Ryan. He actually wrote a commentary on uh, Revelation uh, 2 and 3, the seven churches, and I really like this, how he describes it, and he applies it personally, right? He writes this, it, it is the Greek word kapon, labor, and it means to labor to the point of exhaustion. That's what it means. Now, does Jesus commend them for that? Yeah. He commends them for laboring to the point of exhaustion. He says, if you want to know the reasons, this is Pastor Ricky Ryan, he says, if you want to know the reasons more churches are not involved in ministries that really affect or really touch their city and their world, it's because the work Jesus has called us to is hard work. If the church is going to make an impact, we have to be willing to labor to the point of exhaustion. Can you say amen to that? The work of God is not just staying in bed. Not just, now, I'm not saying pray. Don't, 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 don't take me out of God. Prayer is important, but it's not just staying in your room and praying. It's praying, and then as the Lord leads, you go out. It's labor. If the church is going to make an impact, we have to be willing to labor to the point of exhaustion. And many churches are simply not willing to work that hard. <laughs> it is true, right? The work of the Lord, it costs. It costs money. It costs time. And it costs energy. And, you know, Jesus commends his church at Ephesus for doing that. They worked to the point of exhaustion. They weren't just sitting behind waiting for people to kind of just give them offerings, right? They worked, and they invested for the kingdom, and Jesus commends them for this. You know, we can apply this to our own church, huh? Our own lives. We can apply this, right? It's a word for me, right? Am I working to the point of exhaustion? It's not kind of a legalistic thing, but man, if you're working for the Lord, man, all hands on deck, right? Let's go for it. Got one life to live, right? Let's make it worth it, huh? And so he commends him for this. But he has one, one correction, right? And it's, a, and it's a doozy. It's a very serious one. He says, nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have what? Left your first love. Now, it doesn't say they lost it. A lot of people say, hey, you lost your first love. No, you, they didn't lose it. They left it. Not like they lost the wallet or something, right? But I would say this, over time it was subtle. Maybe they didn't realize that they left it. And this can happen, people, when we get so doctrinally kind of acute and all these things. And not that doctrine is very important. Remember the doctrinal test in 1 John? Very important. We need to know. But it's never, it never should be at the expense of leaving our first love. And I want to draw this to your attention because I think this is something that we can really really see an application for, you know, the more learned we get, the more knowledgeable we get, oftentimes the more prideful we get. We become unlearned, right? We can't learn because we're prideful. You know, I've always said this, right? A little confidence and a little knowledge or a little knowledge and a little confidence is the most dangerous combination. You know why? Because you say, hey, you know, I know what to do now. But remember when you had no knowledge and no confidence, what did you say? Hey, you cry out to the Lord. Lord, show me. What did Jesus say? Unless you become like one of these, right? One of these what? Children. Let me give you the, the um, references to that. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, 
He says, at that time, or Matthew says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had said, and had him stand among them. And he said this, this is Jesus, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever what? Humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19, verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You see, the thing about a child, it's not that a child is always right. Most of the time a child is learning, right? But he's open to learning. He's humble. He's human. Right? And so a child is open. He's teachable. A childlike heart. Maybe he doesn't know a lot. Maybe he doesn't know as much as you, but he's open, right, to learning and listening. See, that's what we lose when we become knowledgeable and confident. And this is the sense of what happened in the church of Ephesus. They knew doctrine. Boy, they had patience. They were enduring, right? But they left their first love in doing so. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. What are the first works? Remember when you were first born again, when you didn't have any knowledge? But you were humbled, huh? That's like, boy, you couldn't quote scripture, right? Because you didn't know scripture. But you said, Lord, I need help. Help me, Lord. Teach me, Lord. Right? It says, return to that place, the first works. Or else, notice, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. It says, unless you turn. What does repent mean? It's to change direction. It's to change your mind so you change direction. Unless you repent, I'm going to remove your lamps. I'm going to remove your church. Now let me ask you, the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is modern-day Turkey. Is there a church there? Now there's an underground church, but not a, a formal church. Matter of fact, the church wasn't there for too much longer. So the sense is this, right? They didn't repent. Perhaps they got more educated, but they didn't repent. And so notice he says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. That literally came to pass. Now, quickly, it's the word taku in the, um, in the Greek. It's where we get the word tachometer. Anybody drive a stick shift? Tachometer, right, the RPMs? Revolutions per minute of the, of the uh, see that thing revs up, well, you got to shift, otherwise that thing's going to break, right? You're going to blow up the engine, or you take it up to what, maybe two, three RPM, or three at the most, you take it up to six, seven, boy, it's going to break. This is what he's talking about. You're going to break unless you repent. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. This life of faith we see dimly, but then we shall see him face to face at the rapture of the church. Now I know in part, in faith, the sight of faith, right? But then when I'm raptured, I shall know just as I also know. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's the greatest gift, people. And so we can 
be a church and operate in all these different things. Education, knowing the scriptures, quoting scripture, barking out at these false teachers, right? But I got to tell you people, if we become, if we learn these things at the expense of becoming loveless, you can be sure this fellowship will be removed. A loveless church. Thanks again for joining us on our podcast of Calvary Chapel Agua Park. We hope and pray that you have been blessed by the teaching and join us again as we continue to study the Word of God. Once again, you can always visit us on our homepage at ccechopart.com for more information and teachings from Pastor David. To God be the glory.